Good morning, everybody. Happy Sabbath. It's good to see you. Thank you so much, Katie and Kirsten, for that uh, beautiful song and children's story. Um, we have so much happening at our church, and our Sabbath schools are doing such a great job, and I just want to say thank you to all our Sabbath school teachers. Amen? Um, if you're not in- encouraged to go to a Sabbath school, I don't know what else you need, because there's so much happening Every morning I come in here, I see um, Able Sabbath School class just having a very, this morning, I don't know what you were talking about, but I was like, man, I need to get in there because that looks like such a good conversation. Robbie's was there at the back. There was one at the front. There was one at this back. Everybody just having a really good time engaging with God's word. So I would invite all of you, whether you're young, whether you're old, to join our Sabbath schools. It's a great time to fellowship together, to engage in scripture together. It's really a big privilege to be here um, or to join Sabbath School. Um, I had a good week. Everybody else have a good week? Yeah, it was good. But rainy, but also really hot. It uh, seems that summer's on its way, so that was good. The, the thing that I enjoyed this week was our carols. It started off as a good, good uh, beginning of the week. We had Compassion Sunday on Sunday. And then we had a carol service. If you missed it, you missed out because it was so good. We had about 750-ish people, some say even maybe even more than that, people just singing and just having a good time. Um, and that was just great. It was also great the, the morning to come together as a church and you know, just bless people by making up compassion and hampers to go out. Um, so yeah, that was the highlight of my week. That and I had a really good mango. That was one of the highlights of my week as well. How many of you love mangoes? How many of you don't like mangoes? Put them on the prayer list. Um, man, I just had the bear. I don't know where Megan bought them, but man, it was so good. Anyway, we're back. Uh, battles and blessings. Today is our last sermon on battles and blessings. We are done with Daniel chapter 1 to 6. We're going to pause for a while. So this week will be our last small group Bible study sessions. And then next week in the beginning of the year, we will start off again with Daniel chapter 7 to Daniel chapter 12. So we're in Battles and Blessings. This is our last one. And today's sermon is called Deception, Destruction, and Deliverance. But before we start, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll be with us now, Lord. We've heard such a beautiful children's story, Lord, by Adriana, and this beautiful song that just summarizes the message, Lord, that there are people out there that wants to deceive us, Lord, but yet we must continue to let our little light shine in this world, Lord, of darkness. And so I pray, Lord, that the same spirit that inspired Scripture will inspire us, Lord, to be like Daniel in this world, Lord. There is not a book that is more applicable than Daniel for our lives today. So I pray that we would understand the message of Daniel chapter 6, Lord, in a profound way, that each of us, Lord, will know the calling that you have for us on our lives. Bless us now, Lord, and may we understand and apply. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said... Amen. So the question I want to ask today is, what do you do in the face of political persecution? Now, Daniel chapter 6 is one of the stories that's probably the most well-known or one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, people know about the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Right? But there's uh, something so simple about that, God delivering his people, but there's another element, a deeper element, that we as Christians and Christians throughout the, the ages have struggled with. What do you do in the face of political persecution? That's what we're going to try and answer today. And I'm going to, I'm going to work through five elements. The first one is persecution is what? Inevitable. Every, day, uh, every time that you see something underlined today, I want you to, to help me pronounce it. Yeah, persecution is inevitable. Boldness is, is indispensable. True, trust is essential. Deliverance is possible and influence is 
unmistakable. Those are the five things that we're going to cover today, right? Persecution is inevitable, boldness is indispensable, trust is essential, deliverance is possible, and influence is unmistakable. Daniel chapter 1 verse Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 says, It pleased Darius. This is now a transition into a new kingdom. Remember Daniel chapter 2 said that there will be a, a kingdom of gold that will, be, will uh, be superseded by another kingdom, an inferior kingdom, a kingdom of silver, the Medes and the Persians. We are in that chapter now. Right? We saw last week how uh, Belshazzar was overtaken and Babylon had fallen. Now we read, It pleased Darius, the king of, of uh, the Medes, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, you might not know what is a satrap. It's not a mousetrap. It is actually a position, right? So there's 120 provinces in the empire. And so Darius puts 120 prefects or principals or whatever over those 120 and um, does that throughout the whole kingdom. And over the three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give account. So it's like a pyramid, right? You have Darius at the top, three main governors and 120 under them so that the king might suffer no loss. Verse 3, this Daniel became distinguished above all the other officials and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. So Daniel is so good, he's, he's so excellent that the king says, hey, I actually want this guy to rule in my stead as the one that's above everybody, right? Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel. Why, why do they want a ground for complaint against Daniel? Because they're jealous. There's something against them. They, they don't like this with regard to the kingdom, and they would find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. That's an amazing thing that they tried. right? These are these political leaders, and they get the CIA and the FBI and the NSA and all of these Things and they try and find dirt on Daniel and they can't find anything. They can't find anything uh, uh, with God's servant. And no error was felt found in him. Verse 5, then these men said, well, we shall, find, uh, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in what? In connection with the law of his God. Now this might seem trite, superficial, like, oh yeah, yeah, but he's always been a faithful servant of God's law. But have you ever read this phrase in connection with the law of his God in the previous chapters? This is the first time that we see this introduction of the idea of law. Verse 6, it continues, it says, And these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. Now that word agreement is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it's, it, it means something specific that I'll get to in a minute. But it's used also in another sense, in another verse, in, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Same Hebrew word. Why do these nations rage and people's plot in vain. So the same word there that said that they came in agreement is the same word where Psalm 2 describes the nation raging together. So this is, what, this is the picture that Daniel is putting together, that these men didn't come very orderly and very nice and said, hey, King, we have this idea. We've kind of thought about it. We've deliberated. No, no. There's some rage. There's something driving them, right? Now, the word there is the word ragas. That's the kind of root word here. And it means to be in rebellion, formally, to be restless, I want this to get this in your mind. Here is Daniel, and he is just faithful to Darius. He is faithful to his God. He is a faithful man that is a man of integrity. He's doing right. Now, quick question. If Daniel, when Daniel was in Babylon, was he a good steward of Babylon? Yeah, he was a good steward. He was a good man. He did his work well, 
right? Was that beneficial or detrimental to Babylon? It's beneficial, right? Now, this king, Darius comes and he sees a man that is faithful and good. Is he going to be a, a detrimental or a beneficial to the Medes and the Persians? Beneficial, right? But these men come and they say, whoa, whoa, we, they're restless, right? They conspire to be an open defiance of a king and a coronation. So they're coming to, to actually blame Daniel to say he's not good for the kingdom. Well, in fact, he is good for the kingdom. Implying tumult and disorderly conduct of the act, attempting to overthrow of the government. So these men are driven and there is some turmoil, tumult going on there because they want Daniel to be removed, right? It's not just them thinking about it. There's something more, more conspiratorial about this. Verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce the injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, this seems a bit weird, Here's a polytheistic, pluralistic place, and suddenly saying, God, a king, let everybody just worship you, not even their own gods. How do you think the king felt about that? At first, he must have felt pretty flattered, because during that time, the, the pagan kings had this idea that they were gods in flesh. The Caesar thought that he was God. The empires thought the empire, uh, the kings of empires thought that they were God. You know, so here they're coming and they're flattering something that he thought that he was, and they're saying, "Let nobody worship you for thirty days." Now, this was also a political strategy. This was at the point where the Medes and the Persians were probably at their weakest, in the sense that when a kingdom takes over another kingdom, in that point of the transition between one kingdom to another kingdom, the kingdom is pretty fragile. It gives space of insurrection. It gives space of rebels trying to take over. And, and so they're saying, King, let's stabilize all of this. Can you hear the kind of words that they're using? Can you hear the ideas behind them? King, we want this kingdom to, to really be blessed. We want this kingdom to have peace. And we think the best thing that you need to do now for your people is to make sure that everybody worships you. This is the best for the kingdom. This is the best for you. Let nobody worship anything else. And so the king's like, Man, you guys are truly wise men. I think I'll do this, right? Now we see this. Now the king established the injunction and signed the document and so that it cannot be, that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, there's a, a transition movement of kingdom here. Before this, we saw absolute kingdoms, right? When King Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, your head chopped off, that happens. He didn't need to ask anybody. But now we move to a, a different kind of kingdom, right? a constitutional kingdom, where even the king is subject to the law. You see this shift now in the book of Daniel between virtues and laws. What's the difference, right? So therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So here we see the first point. Persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. So here we see political power used to remove religious liberty. Right, that's the main thing that's happening here. Now, what was the reason for their persecution? Why did they want to push for this? Why did they want to do this? Right? That's the question we want to ask. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find any connection with his law of, the law of his God. Their motivation was jealousy and envy and all of these things, but the instrument that they were using was taking away from the law of his God to the law of the Medes and the Persians. That's the instrument of persecution is law, right? The law 
um, of God is the thing that they want to move him away from. Now, we see the shift from values to law in the book of, of, um, of Daniel, right? Now, laws, according to John Lennox, um, laws are based on values, but laws aren't values. They are not the same as values. Laws are enactments by the state for the purpose of upholding values, right? So we have various laws in our society. The virtue that it wants to protect is, say, freedom, and so to have freedom, there's certain laws that they want to protect that virtue by, right? So virtues and laws are not the same thing. You use laws to, to protect the, the virtues. For them to be effective and to ensure compliance, they are normally backed up by a system of courts and police. So you have virtues, you have laws, and then you have persecution. So you are persecuted because you rebel against the law, and this law is protecting a specific virtue. This is what we're seeing throughout history. There's a virtue, the law wants to protect that virtue, and if you break that law, well, then you are persecuted. Now, in Daniel chapter 1 to 5, we see this interesting theme of the clash of differing value sets. And there's this um, literary device that they use in Scripture called inclusios. Think of it as a bookend. Sometimes when you read a story in the Bible and you read a few chapters in the Bible, it will, it will share something and then it will share the story, and then it will share that same phrase or the same idea, and that sometimes works as an inclusio to say that the section starts here, the section ends here, and all of this in the middle has to do with a very similar theme. Now, we see this, for instance, in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 starts off and says that Nebuchadnezzar came, and he took the vessels out of God's temple. Now, those vessels were vessels for what? For worship. Those vessels were called holy vessels, in Hebrew, kadosh. Now, that means that they are set aside for specific use. God said that these vessels are used only for one thing. There's, there's only one thing that I want them to use for. You cannot change it. As a human being, you cannot change what these vessels are for. Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, no, 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 I'll decide what happens with these vessels. He goes into God's temple, and he takes these vessels. Now, last week, we spoke about Daniel chapter 5. What was the beginning of the downfall of Belshazzar? He took the vessels out of the temple. And it reminds us in the chapter, it says, and he took of his grandfather or father Nebuchadnezzar the same vessels and he threw in wine and he was mocking in defiance God. So this is an inclusio, Daniel chapter one and Daniel chapter five. And so in the middle, the main thing that we see here is a, a, a contrast with values. We never come across any laws. Nebuchadnezzar didn't say, hey, Daniel, you went against this law. Or, hey, hey, guys, you, did, you broke this law. No, he says, you did this and I want that. His value system against Daniel and his friends' value systems. We see, for instance, Daniel chapter 1, where we observe that Nebuchadnezzar's treatment of the temple vessels from Jerusalem represents a ubiquitous tendency to relativize the absolute. What does that mean? It means God had made his vessels absolute. He said this is the absolute truth, that these vessels are only to be used for holy things. Nebuchadnezzar said, no, 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 no. There's not just one God, there's many gods in this polytheistic, pluralistic society. I have many gods. I have chosen Marduk to be my God, but there's many other gods. So I will just have this another God bring his stuff in, and it's just one of the many. This might be your God, but it's not my God. So in Daniel chapter 1, we're seeing that he takes things that God had said is to be absolute, he makes it relative. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has shown that no state or political system has absolute value in the eyes of God. What does that mean? Meaning that there's, there's not one kingdom where God is like, this is the only kingdom that will reign forever and ever. No, no, no. God says, all of these kingdoms will fall. There's only one kingdom, my kingdom, that has absolute value. But worldly kingdoms, they have no absolute value. 
Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar defies that notion by making his empire and rule absolute. So what is he saying? God had said that it's not absolute. He says, no, 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 it is. My kingdom will reign forever. So he puts a statue of just gold up. Right? He's constantly in defiance. One worldview or one set of values against another set of values. To the extent that he insists on being treated as a God in worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar absolutizes the relative. First, he takes what God had said is, to abs- is absolute, and he makes that relative. And now he takes what he wants as relative and makes it absolute. That's the thing about re- religious persecution, is that certain things that should be absolute, things that are unchangeable, men says it's not, it's not important. We can change it. And then certain things, they say, no, this you cannot change. Man becomes the measure of all things. Then in chapter 4 and 5, we see the kings are weighed on their value systems. They weighed and they judged. Nebuchadnezzar repents and Belshazzar doesn't. With verse 2 we read this, Belshazzar when tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and the silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought. The reason that Daniel puts this in here, the reason that he reminds the reader about these things is he wants to remind them of the story that's been going on, the clash of value sets that has been happening. When you remember the, the writing on the wall, mene mene tekel uparsen. Tekel meaning what? You have been weighed. The, the uh, uh, common parlance today, mo- modern vernacular, that same writing on the wall could have been like dollar, dollar, cents, half a cent or something like that, right? It's a value system. They knew kind of what it meant, and shekels and minas and uh, minas. And so they're looking at that and that's why they didn't fully understand it because when they saw it, they saw value systems but they didn't know what it meant. On a cosmic sense, God says that I have weighed your value system. I have looked at your value system and your value system comes up short. We see this movement in the first five chapters about values. Now suddenly we see verse 6 to 12, chapter 6 to 12, the clash of differing laws. So we see the value system at war with each other and now suddenly the value system shifts towards now we see there's an element of persecution because of the laws that happens. Daniel chapter 6, right? Now we see this idea of laws being implemented. John Lennox, once again, he says, the instrument, remember, this is an instrument that they use to persecute on the base of the values. The instrument that the jealous civil servants used to attack Daniel was the law of the Medes and the Persians. This phrase occurs three times a year. Indicating in, in that chapter, indicating that the central topic of this chapter is the imposition of the law to deny Daniel the right to practice, practice his own faith and to worship God according to the law of Moses. This matter of law is taken up against in the sections that follow. For instance, in Daniel chapter 7, there is a description of a powerful king who shall change the times and the law. The king is judged by a heavenly court by which the books are open, and the, the king sits on his throne, and under his throne is the law of God. So once again, Daniel chapter, six, the, uh, Daniel chapter 7, the main element in Daniel chapter 7 is the law of God versus the law of this individual that wanted to change the laws and the seasons of God. So one of the key things is law. Daniel chapter 8 tells of another powerful king, the little horn, who stops the regular burnt offering that was required by the law of Moses. Daniel chapter 9 finds Daniel confessing that the disaster has overtaken Jerusalem and the result of the nation's failure to keep the law of Moses. Daniel, and finally the last section of Daniel chapters 10 to 12, we read once more of a king who stops the regular burnt offering, a king whose heart shall be set against the holy covenant. Law then, both the law of the state and the law of God forms a thread running through the second half of the book. 
I want to just pause here for a second. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are very strong on the law. And we've drifted maybe a little bit from that because we don't want to be seen as legalistic. This is a non-Seventh-day Adventist that just reads the text and he says, in Daniel, one of the key things is the law. Law is super important. Saying it's, it's, it's un unquestionable. When you read the book of Daniel, there's virtues and then the laws that enact those virtues, right? So the key element in the end time for us that we need to know, because Daniel and Revelation, is the law is super important in both of these books. And these books are written for us to know about the end of times. The key element in the end of time is your attitude and your approach to God's law. When you take and hold up God's law, you are not legalistic. You can be legalistic. God's law can be kept. And this is the key thing. Remember, there's virtues, there's laws, and then there's persecution based on whether you keep those laws. If you keep the law without the virtue, you're legalistic. When you keep the law injunction in line with, in alignment with the virtue, you're not legalistic. Because the law is essentially, what's the virtue behind God's law? Love. That's the thing. So ask yourself, are you legalistic? Say to you, what motivates you? Love? For God and for your neighbor? Is that the thing that drives you? Right? We get tripped up about these things about the law. But here it's very, very, very important. So persecution is inevitable for Daniel. Would Daniel stay away and move away from God's law? No, he's kept it faithful. Now remember that Daniel is about 86 years old here. Right? He's been in, this, in Babylon for 40 plus, 60 plus years, right? He's been in this position. He has been a faithful servant of God's law. So when there is a conflict between two value systems, between two laws, what is he going to choose? It's like a no-brainer. He's going to choose God's law. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he's not wondering. He knows that it is signed. He knows that it is signed. He went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open to Jerusalem. Why to Jerusalem? He's praying. He's, once again, taking what the word said seriously. When Solomon dedicated the temple, said pray towards the temple. So he's taking the words of Scripture seriously. He's putting his face towards Jerusalem. He's praying towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, quick question. Could Daniel have walked down and be like, ooh, kind of breezy out here. I think I'll pray inside today, right? He could have still prayed. Nobody would have known. He could have said, I think it's, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be prideful, so it's probably better for me to pray in my closet. Didn't Jesus say that we should pray in our closet? But he said, no, no, I'm going to go out there. I know what is signed, but I will stand firm. As he had done previously, these men caught by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? Did you not sign a law that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law, to the law and the means of the Persians, which cannot be revoked. It's interesting here that they mention this idea of the den of lions, this animals, uh, the threat of animals, but it seems that the law becomes an animal unto itself. That even the king cannot do anything about this law. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is the exiles from Judah. Can you see how this anti-Semitic uh, influence is coming in? they bringing him down. He's not one of us, but this guy, one of the exiles from Judah. He's been there for how long? And yet they remind him that he's an exile. Pays no attention to you, O king, for the injunction you have signed, but makes petitions three times a day. So here we see that boldness is what? Indispensable. 
Boldness is indispensable. Daniel knew what was going on, and he's like, I'm still going to continue what God has called me to do. I'm still going to continue my everyday life because I'm a man of integrity. I'm going to keep on doing and worshiping my God. Whether there's persecution or no persecution, whether there's a law or no law, I'm going to keep on worshiping. Now, would you have liked to have the boldness of Daniel? I mean, we sing these songs, Dare to be a Daniel. Would you have loved to have the boldness of Daniel? Ellen White has this beautiful passage. I want to read it to you. She says, Daniel was aware of the purpose of his enemies to destroy his influence and his life. He knew of the decree. He wasn't ignorant. He knew. But it made no difference in his daily life. Made no difference. He did nothing unusual to provoke wrath. Meaning he didn't go out of his way to provoke them. No, 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 no. And this is an important thing. Daniel is a gentle, meek, and mild. He doesn't go to provoke them. He's not there to anger them. He's not being rude and discourteous. He did nothing unusual to provoke wrath. But in a straightforward manner, he performed his accustomed duties. And three times a day, at his usual times of prayer, he went into his room. And with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he earnestly pleaded with God of heaven to give him the strength to be faithful. Daniel had a special meeting place. I just want to go back to you. He gave him the strength to be faithful. It wasn't Daniel that was just naturally faithful. He had to plead every single day a connection with God to be faithful. He had to say, God, make me faithful. Today, let me be faithful. God, give me the strength to be faithful. It didn't just happen naturally. Daniel had a special meeting place, an appointed hour when he met the Lord. You can see that there are disciplines in his life, spiritual disciplines, an importance of spiritual disciplines. And these appointments were kept. There is a beauty in the thought of the soul connection between Daniel and heaven. His spiritual life was an actual thing. Listen to this. His spiritual life was an actual thing, a life which he lived as real and as true as the physical life. Have you ever been hungry before? Have you ever been so hungry where you're like, man, my stomach is going to start eating my pancreas if I don't eat something now? Have you ever felt that way? Where it's a physical thing. Daniel was like, that's how my soul is if I don't worship God today. That it's a physical, real thing. How's your spiritual life? Is it just as important as it is to eat and to drink and to sleep and to look after your physical necessities? Is that how important it is to keep a spiritual life going? The only life which his enemies knew or could comprehend was the what? The physical life. I want you to see this. Daniel is aware not only of the, of the physical, but also of the spiritual. He, he, he encapsulates total truth, the full scope of reality, not just the physical, but also the spiritual. That what you could see and that which you can't see. But his, his opponents, the people against him, they could not. They only could see the physical, the material. To sever the intercourse with God would be as painful to Daniel as to deprive him of his natural life. He said, if I remove myself from this, if I don't worship God, it is as if I'm dead already. So it doesn't really matter. Because if I don't go and pray, if I don't go and worship, if I cut myself off from God, I'm dead already. It's the same thing. And as Christ withdrew to the mountains after days of soul-harrowing labor in order to be refilled with that life which he consistently imparted to the hungering multitudes, so Daniel sought God in prayer. Here are the two massive uh, uh, pillars in our faith. And Daniel says, I cannot live this life. I cannot serve God in this world without having that prayer life. Jesus, who himself is God, he says, I have to spend nights in prayer. How is your prayer life? 
How is your devotional life? How serious do you take that? It was only by these frequent times of spirit filling, as it were, that he had strength to meet the nervous strain of his official duties. So that was the source of his strength. When the outward pressure was the greatest, do you think that he had great pressure in his life? Right? Prime minister. Big dog of the state. Like he has tons of stuff that he has to look for. When all the pressures were mounting, then he had the greatest need of being filled that the equilibrium might, might, be, might be maintained. He who balances the clouds will so balance the outward pressure with the inward power, but if we let him, that he will never need to be disturbed. Have you ever been disturbed? Have you ever felt frightened? God will come and he will give you that peace. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's taking the storm away, but he's giving you peace in that storm. 15 pounds to every square inch of surface of the body is the pressure under which we physically live, the air pressure that we have, this constant air pressure. Why do we survive in this air pressure? Why does it not crush us? Because the pressure is equal on all sides, and thus we are unconscious of it. It is but a type of the spiritual life. If trials are great, open the soul to heaven and equalize the pressure by being filled from above. That was the source and the power of Daniel and his three friends. They had the power of the Spirit in them that could withstand the pressures of the outside world. So boldness is what? Indispensable. And that boldness comes from Jesus Christ and the Spirit living in us. Then the king, when he heard these, uh, these words, watched much, much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. This is the pr profound thing, right? Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den, right? These things came by agreement to the king, what verse is that, verse 15, and said to the king, now, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So the king is trying, he's trying to help Daniel, he's trying to help him here and, and try to go out, but can you see how the law becomes a beast on its own? Not even the king that enacted the law can do anything about the law. The law is done, and now the law must take its, uh, take its course. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Now, just pause the story here. Who's the one that's stressing at this moment, according to the story? The king. Do you, do you see Daniel stressing? Now, would you be stressing if, if you know you're going to be in a lion's den in a few minutes? Oh, it's normal. It's human to be stressing. But Daniel, in accident, says this king is freaking out, right? And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and in signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. In the um, Middle East, the idea of, of fasting means praying. Now, the biggest meal during that time was eaten at night, when a lot of people came and a lot of people feasted. But here the king says, I want nothing, right? No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now, it's interesting do you think that Daniel slept, yes or no? We don't really know, right? The, the text doesn't say it. But it is interesting that the king in his palace struggles to sleep. But Daniel, I presume that he probably had a good sleep. So with God, I'd rather be in a lion's den than be in a king's palace without God. But today, we are seeking all the material things of the world, and we forget God. And we still have struggles and stress and all of these things. And we say, God, I don't understand why my life is so difficult. It's because God is not there and the pressures are mounting on us. Then at the break of day, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. 
My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths and they will not harm me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Deliverance is possible. Deliverance is possible. God can deliver us. These are stories of deliverance upon deliverance. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and, the king, and, and no kind of harm was found in him because what? Because he trusted in God. So trust is essential. Now quick question. Which came first, deliverance or trust? Okay. In the story as we read it now, it says he was delivered because he trusted God. But in actual fact, he trusted first, and then therefore God delivered him. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast in, in, in the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That's it's pretty horrific. You wonder why Daniel put this in here. There has been some scholars that have suggested, oh, the lions weren't hungry. This wasn't a miracle. Daniel fell on a specific place and he hid away. The lions couldn't get him. He was too quick to hide somewhere in the, the den. But this says specifically, man, what they did, they, before they reached the bottom of the den, it must have been a gruesome thing to watch. Before they even, before they even touched the ground, it's tickets, it's gone. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages and dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied by you. Man, let me tell you, if a king just chucks somebody in a den and then says, shalom, peace to you, I'd question his sanity. Um, I make a decree that in all the royal dominion, now once again, I, I just want to mention this, King, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, he had a kingdom, uh, an empire that was very vast. The Medes and the Persians came and it was even bigger. The Greeks came, it was even bigger. The Romans came and it was even bigger, right? It keeps on expanding more and more. So now you can see, Daniel is faithful to God and his faithfulness leads to more people hearing about God. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, even bigger than Nebuchadnezzar's, people are to tremble and fear before God, the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never come to an end. Is that not, is that not Daniel chapter two? Is that not the same thread that we see the whole time, the sovereign God that can destroy and deliver who he wants to destroy and deliver? That you cannot go against this God? He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in the heavens of the earth and he has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Influence is unmistakable. Now let's go through these. Daniel's test of faithfulness was a faithful testimony of God's rule and reign. So some life lessons for us. Number one, persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaking, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus is busy getting his disciples ready. He's been journeying with them and suddenly says, I need to take my message out further than just what I can take to him. And so if you go read Matthew chapter 10, right? Matthew chapter 10. Now, I just want to pause here. Matthew chapter 10 is the re-explanation of God's law. There's five narrative blocks in it and five teaching blocks in it. At the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, we read Jesus giving the great commission to his disciples, and he says, go and teach. Now, this is the only time that we read of the great commission to teach, right? The reason is, is Matthew is adding the teachings of Jesus in Matthew. And so when he says, go and teach them all things that I have taught you, he is saying all the things that I've taught you already. 
So if you don't know what's the teachings of, just read the book of Matthew. So Jesus is teaching us here. He's showing us the ways of what it means to be a disciple. It's this textbook. So we read, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Then the next story is Jesus calling the 12 apostles. He's calling all of his 12 apostles, and he sends them out, sending out the 12. And then the next story, right after this, we read this. Behold, I am sending you as sheep amidst what? Wolves. Does that sound like persecution to you? Persecution is inevitable. Be as wise as serpents. So don't be foolish. Be wise as serpents, but what? Innocent as doves. Was Daniel uh, innocent as a dove? Was he as wise as a serpent? Yeah. Remember the quote from Alan White. He wasn't just attacking. He wasn't just looking for trouble, but he was as innocent as a dove. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts. Why? Because there's law enacting certain virtues that are against the virtues that you think is important. And flog you in their synagogues, and they will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear what? To bear witness. Now, interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, the story of the church, the gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus. The, the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit working through his people. And the book of Acts can be summarized in one verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Wait until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then go and be my witnesses to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the world. Now that word witness, if you read through the book of Acts, you will see that the word witness comes up all the time. They were witnessing, they were witnesses of, they were witnessing, they were witnesses of. Witness, 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 witness. Do you know the root word of witness in the Greek is the root word for our English word of martyr. When you read the word witness in the Greek, it literally means somebody that will testify even unto death that will be martyred. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers are few. I'm choosing 12 of them. I'm sending them out. And as they go out, they will receive what? Persecution. If you're a disciple of Jesus, at one point in time, your value system will come against the world's value system, and there will be persecution. Don't wonder, I wonder if I'll be persecuted. You will if you're standing up for Jesus. It's just, that's the, that's the, the nature of the beast. That's just how it is, Right? You will be witnesses of these things. The gospel is like a caged lion, Nancy Pierce writes. Said the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, it does not need to be defended, it simply needs to be led out of his cage. Listen to what she says here. Today the cage is our accommodation to the secular and sacred split that reduces Christianity to a matter of personal beliefs. To unlock this cage, we need to become utterly convinced that as Francis Schaeffer, who is an apologist, Christian apologist, Christianity is not merely religious truth, it is total truth, truth about the whole of reality. What does that mean, Nancy? Let me explain. There is this idea of the split in our world. The concept of truth has been divided where there's one element, what we call the theological or moral sphere, which is private, subjective, and relativistic. And then on the other hand of our society, of our secular society, there's science, which is public, objective, and valid for everyone. So she's saying that the world that we inhibit today, the secular world that we live in today, is saying there are certain things that's objectively true, like gravity, because science says so, and then other things like you believe that there is a God that's your truth, not necessarily the truth. 
but Francis Schaeffer and Nancy Piercy and various other Christian apologists says, no, 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 no. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's making an objective statement to say that the, the, the scriptures creates a reality to us that there is a God, that there is a spiritual domain, that there are certain laws that govern us as human beings, and then if you go against those laws, there will be consequences. And she says, unless we start to realize that if we start living in this world where we fall into the trap of believing that there's certain things that's true for everybody and certain things like our religious moral beliefs that's only true for Christians, we're in a problem. But there is a thing as total truth. And when you start believing in total truth, persecution is just around the corner. Now as Christians, we are called to believe all of Scripture and to stand up for all of Scripture, just like Daniel did. So persecution is inevitable. If you hold up God's word to be true and righteous, persecution is inevitable. But boldness is indispensable. Once again, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus continuing, he says, when they deliver you, do not be anxious, because that's the thing, we're timid, we're scared, what are we gonna say, I don't know, know enough, right? When they deliver you, do not be anxious. Jesus is continuing to say, persecution will come, but do not be anxious, why? How you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, why? Because the pressures might mount, it might push, but you've got the spirit in you, so you can stand up loud and proud, being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove and say, the spirit is with me. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And do not fear, verse 28, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This was Daniel. He's going to a lion's den. Now, naturally as a human being, he'd be afraid. He'd be like, oh, this is probably going to hurt. All right? But in one sense, he's not afraid to die. Because as Paul says, to die is what? Yeah. Death, where is, your, where is your victory? Where is your sting? When you die today, they kill your body, but they haven't killed your soul, you're going to see Jesus again. When Jesus returns, you're going to be resurrected with a new body. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him. Who is him? God himself, who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now, who, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is Peter's words. He's saying, who is there to harm you? But even if you should suffer for the righteous sake, you will be blessed. Peter's saying the same things as Jesus. There will come a time that you will suffer for what is right. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Once again, you read the scriptures, go through all of them. They all know persecution. All of the disciples, except John, died as uh, a martyr's death. And John was tried as a martyr. The reason that he was at Patmos writing the book of John is because they tried to kill him, but they couldn't. They tried to boil him in oil, and he couldn't. So they said, we don't know what to do with this guy. Send him off to Patmos. Right? All of the disciples, they knew persecuted death. Being a Christian means to stand up for truth that is not necessarily comfortable of this world. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. That word for defense literally means standing in a court of law and giving a defense. The word there is apologia, which we get the word apologetics from. To give a reasoned defense of what you believe, why you believe. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying you have time to prepare for this. 
Because you know persecution is inevitable. If you're standing for truth, truth will put you at odds with this world. Which therefore means, be prepared. Prepare yourself now that when the time comes, you have already read it. Now you might not recall those things in a minute, but the Holy Spirit will help you to recall what's in your mind. Give you the words to speak. Be a faithful steward now. Study the scriptures. Know the truth. Be ready to prepare to give a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do that with what? Gentleness and respect. Do be, be, be wise as serpents, but be as gentle as doves. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Will slander happen? 100%. Is it easy? Definitely not. Those revile your good behavior. Will there be people that will stand up against what you're doing and say, but this isn't right, this isn't true? Yeah, 100%. For it is better to suffer for doing good what do we want to do? Retaliate. Play the same world games, right? They, they inflict power and pain on me. I will use power to inflict pain on them. Yet says, no, no, for it is better to suffer for doing good than it would be, uh, th- that it should be God's will than for doing evil. Trust is essential. This is the core of it. Persecution is inevitable. It will happen. Boldness is indispensable. We have to be bold. But at the heart of it is trust that is essential. We need to trust in Jesus. Deliverance is possible, meaning Jesus can deliver us. And the next one, influence is unmistakable. Now, I want to take you to one, one section in the Bible that covers all three of these last ones. Trust is essential, deliverance is possible, and influence is unmistakable. Now, I only have 40 minutes and I'm already five minutes over, but I can make this sermon probably three hours just focusing on the book of Daniel and how it relates to the whole book of Revelation and the whole book of Daniel. Why? Because this is at the heart of the whole book coming of Daniel and the whole book of Revelation. If you've ever read through Revelation, you know this is at the key. There is a war raging, a great controversy raging. And if you read it the whole time, all of these political powers, all of the religious powers coming together, fighting against God's saints because they're standing for the law of God. Right? And I'm not talking about it in a legalistic way. I'm talking about they they imbibe both the virtues and the laws in their actions. Revelation chapter 12, at the heart of the war, the heart of, the, of, of Revelation, right? It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, right? So deliverance is possible. Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his anointed one, his Messiah have come. Not is coming, have come. This is at the cross. For the accuser of our brothers. Now those men, were they accusers? Yes or no? Those men that were in, yeah, they were accusing him. Satan, right? When you read this section in Revelation, it gives various names of Satan. The Satan, the devil, the serpent, right? It gives all of these names. What are these, the, the dragon, the serpent, the, 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 the devil. All of these things are saying the same thing. He's an accuser using words to bring against you, to persecute you, to bring harm to you. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. Deliverance is possible. By what? By the blood of the lamb. What do they trust in? Their own merits, their own power? No, 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 by what? By the blood of the lamb. Deliverance is possible by the trust that they have in Jesus. And by the word of what? Of their testimony. They have the word in them. 
They have the new covenant of God in them. For they love not their lives unto death. What does that mean? That means that there's persecution happening, but they didn't love their lives unto death. Why? Because they were faithful to Jesus. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that the time is short. Persecution is inevitable for us. If you're, if, if you're following Jesus, it's inevitable. Boldness is something that is called for us as Christians. It's indispensable to our discipleship journey. Trust is essential. That's at the heart of the message, to trust in Jesus. And we have all of these stories, the stories of Daniel, the stories of David, we have the stories of the disciples. We have all these stories of God always being there for his people. He says, lo, I am with you. When? Till tomorrow. Always. Deliverance is possible. We know that God already saved us. Daniel was standing this side of the cross, still looking forward to Jesus coming. We can look back at the cross and know that God has given. He has poured out the treasury of heaven in one gift, Jesus Christ himself. There is nothing else that he could give to save us and to, to assure us that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he is with us. Let me tell you, when it says deliverance is possible, we know this because we are saints saved by Jesus Christ himself. And so our influence becomes unmistakable. When we stand up in the face of persecution, when we are tested for our faith, people will see and God's good name will be seen throughout this whole world. So what do we do in the face of political persecution? Because let me tell you, it will come. And we're starting to see glimmers of it in our world already, aren't we? Just the other day, there was somebody persecuted for just being a Christian, couldn't hold his job just because he was a Christian, didn't do anything wrong just because he's a Christian. We live in a world where Australia, 43% are Christian. The rest aren't. When their laws are enacted because it, it enforces their values, they're that that in opposition with our values, not as in my subjective values, but as in God's values that we as Christians keep, persecution is inevitable. So what do we do in the face of political persecution? Be respectfully bold be unflinchingly trusting, just like Daniel. I sometimes wonder what Daniel, what Daniel did in that lines then the whole night. It's a long night. What do you do? You probably don't sleep the whole night through. I presume that Daniel sang a few songs. I don't know what he would have sung, but I tell you, if I was uh, in there, I probably would have sung this song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in this wonderful face. So as we go through life with all its vicissitudes and problems and issues and persecutions and issues, may we remember to be respectfully bold, to stand up for what is right because it is right, and to be unflinchingly trusting in Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on him. I've mentioned this before. There's a story in early writings. I think it's early writings. Um, I'm 100% almost, no, I wouldn't say 100%. Very soon, 99% sure it's in early, early writings. Where Ellen Wright writes the, one of the first visions that she has walking, going to the New Jerusalem. And she has this picture of, of this, this path getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And she says she, she would see this massive throng of people walking towards Jesus uh, or towards the New Jerusalem. And some of them would fall off. But some of them would stay faithful. And the reason is because Jesus was in front of them and they just kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. And the moment that they, kept the eye, they, they diverted their eyes, they would fall down. 
The key to our success in making it in this world is not about the power that you have innately in you, the wisdom that you have innately in you, or anything innately that you think you have in you. The thing that's going to make you stand when the pressures of political persecution fall on you is what? Jesus Christ. So keep your eyes on him and follow the lamb wherever he goes. Amen.